series in First Peter, and so in just a moment, Don will come up and read for us First Peter 1, 1 and 2. We're going to focus on uh, one word in particular uh, in that first verse, the word exile. Uh, we want to look at just what it means that Peter calls the people that he's writing to exiles. What does it mean that we here this morning are exiles? And so the rest of the text that we're going to look at are going to begin to flesh that out for us, and then my message will, uh, Lord willing, bring more clarity to this subject. And so after 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2, we're going to turn to Hebrews 11, 13 to 16. Anna will read that for us. That talks us, tells us about the faith of Abraham who lived looking for his eternal home, for the city that was to come, uh, understanding that he was in exile on the earth today. Uh, Kathy will come up and read for us from Romans 8, 18 to 25 that reminds us of what the conditions are like on the world today, the conditions of our exile, about how there will be suffering, how there will be trial. And then finally, Audrey will come up and read for us from uh, Revelation 21, uh, 1-4, which does tell us about that eternal home that we are heading toward, that, that place that we have to look forward to. And so, Don, if you would come up and read for us now from 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, the obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Hebrews eleven thirteen through 16 These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, But having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged them that they were strangers and exiles in the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared for them a city. Romans eight thirteen, or I'm sorry, eighteen to twenty five. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to the futility, not willing, willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we, for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but as for we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in, the, in hope we have been sa- saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we persevere. 
We, and we wait eagerly for it. Revelation 21, 1 through 4, the new heaven and the new earth. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. From the former things have passed away. Of all the emotions that the human heart experiences, there are not many emotions more powerful than those associated with home. Home is central to our identities. Without any sense of home, we can't even really know who we are. And we kind of come to know who we are by knowing where we are from, by knowing where home is. The idea of home has been celebrated for thousands of years. Indeed, much of the Bible is just about the virtue and the beauty of home. You can even look at the Billboard Top 100 today, and there would be numerous songs engaging with the emotions that all of us have toward home. I'm sure I could ask every person in here about memories of home or what makes a place home for you, and you would all have different stories to share about being home and what made it feel like home, what made it truly home. When someone attacks or says something bad about your home, they feel like you're attacking you personally because we so connect ourselves to our homes. And when we're at home, we feel at peace, we feel like we're at rest. When we're away from home, we feel longing and sorrow or at least we want to feel that way, even if we realize that our home right now is not a place of rest or welcome. One of the unusual things about the way I grew up is that I really kind of grew up without a home. My family was always on the move. I always wondered what it must have felt like for someone to have a home, and I really envied them for having a place they could call home. The place that probably did feel most like home to me was my grandparents' place in the small town of Hopkinsville, Kentucky. They had a lovely home. My my grandma was a home economics teacher back in the day when home economics was thought of as a noble and difficult aspiration, and my grandmother made her house into a lovely home. I wish I could take everyone here through a tour of it. I'm sure that you would love it too if you could see the home that I got to go visit whenever I got to go see my grandma and grandpa. My favorite part of the home, though, was actually the backyard. My grandma loved gardening, and she had scattered flower beds all around her backyard, and my grandpa had a really old riding mower that I always thought was one of the coolest things ever. And if you went far enough back into their backyard, they had maybe a half acre. They had a couple small creeks that would run through their backyard. And over each of those creeks, there was a small wood bridge that you could cross and you could get to a little almost hidden garden in the very back of her backyard. And probably even now, if I could identify any 
place on earth, as the place that most feels like home, I would identify those wooden bridges that run over the creek in my grandma's backyard. It's just when I'm there, when I can sit down on that bridge and have that water flowing underneath my feet, I feel like I'm home. I feel like that's where I'm from. I feel like that is the place where I belong. And again, I'm sure that each one of you could tell a story of what place is really like home to you. What place do you most connect with that sense of home? And so for me, those bridges, that creek is home. I can even smell it now. I can feel the heat of the summer down there, the colors, how me and my cousins would go on so many adventures wandering down that creek picking up critters and going through vegetation so dense that we didn't know where we would come out on the other side. And so even though I never lived there, I always felt like that place was my home. And I could also never forget how much sorrow I felt, how much loss I felt when my grandpa had to sell the place so that he could move into assisted living. And it didn't take very long to sell. And when that house sold, I really felt like I lost a part of myself. I kind of felt like the only permanent or grounded part of me kind of died along with the sale of that house. Home is a very powerful thing. But one big question the Apostle Peter wants to ask us over the course of this letter is, do you know where your true home is? Do you know where your true home is? You see, there's nothing wrong with having an earthly home and with loving your earthly home. That's part of how God made us. Indeed, I think you'd be a little sociopathic if the idea of home didn't have any meaning to you or if it didn't seem special to you at all. In fact, God wants us to have and to love earthly homes in large part so that our hearts can be trained to love and to long for our true home. Earthly homes are are kind of like the training wheels that teach us how we're supposed to feel about our true home and how we're supposed to long for our true home, which is what all of us are supposed to grow up into. Every person on this earth has some place that they consider as their home. Even if it was just one short stop and a long list of places they lived like me. Even people that come from terrible homes can't simply hate their homes as if they mean nothing to them, but because their homes were their homes, they grow up with this never-resolved love-hate relationship with their home because it was such a terrible place on the one hand, but it was home on the other hand. But regardless of how your connection to a place called home came about, it came about in a particular place at a particular time. I mean that the place where you call home, you call it home because you were there for a certain amount of time and probably because you were there at a certain very formative time in your life so that that place, when you were there long enough, became your home. Home is ultimately a matter of being in a particular place for a particular amount of time. And this is why every person on earth has some place that they call home. But it's also why, in addition to having a place that we call home right now, every person on earth also has a place that they should call, that they should think of as their true home. 
They have another place where they will one day live, and they will live in that other place for a longer amount of time and for a more formative period in their life than whatever they consider home right now. Wherever that place is, where they are going and where they will spend eternity, that place will one day feel like the only true home they ever had. And the place that we're now living right now or wherever we think of as home right now is going to seem like a distant and a small memory. I say this with confidence because every human is a spiritual being. We are not merely physical beings. And the amazing thing about the spiritual aspect of who we are is that the spiritual aspect of who we are is actually more lasting and more important than the physical aspect of who we are. We may have a place here on earth that we call home for our bodies, but regardless of where we call home here on earth, there is another place where our spirits will go when we die, and that place should be considered our true home, because that is the place where we will live forever and ever. And it will make our present existence, our whole present life, look like it's only a place that we visited for a short period of time. And so my question for you again this morning is, do you know where your true home is? Scripture paints a picture that tells us that every human being ultimately has one of two true homes. Our true home could be heaven, Or to be more precise, the the new heavens and the new earth, the place where heaven will merge with earth and the two will become one, that place will be a beautiful and a perfect place, a place with no sorrow, no pain. We just read about it in Revelation 21 a moment ago. I wish we could read the whole chapter. It tells you about the river of life that flows through the city and the trees that grow next to that river with abundant fruit and all the gold that's in the city and how God himself is like the sunlight that makes it day all the time. It's a beautiful picture of what our home could someday be. That's one potential home that could be the true home of anyone here. The other potential home that any human being could have is precisely the opposite kind of place. It doesn't have the radiance of God to provide day all the time. It is a dark place. It is only illuminated by fire, which Jesus says will never go out. It is an unquenchable fire. And in that place, all that is known is sorrow. All that is known is pain. There is no life there. There is only death, decay, destruction. It is a place that is horror of horrors. But sadly, that will also be the true home to millions who have rejected the lordship of God and the atonement of Jesus Christ. So again, the question for us this morning is, do you know where your true home is? If you don't know where your true home is, then you can begin to know this very morning. Scripture gives us this good news. This is found in John 14, the first three verses. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? 
And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Jesus says that he is going to go and prepare a place for us. He says that he will come again and he will take us there. And he says that he speaks these words to us precisely so that our hearts will not be troubled. So that we can believe on Jesus and so that we can have confidence that this home that he is preparing truly is ours. He is saying that we don't need to live today in fear of death or in fear of hell. But rather we can live today with the hope, with the joy of knowing that our home is ultimately with Jesus himself. He's saying that we can trust him right now and we can have confidence that that place that he has prepared is really our place. And we don't have to doubt. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to let our hearts be troubled. But how can we have this confidence today that that really is our future home when we're not there yet? And of course, we don't feel entirely certain that that's where we will be. How can we have confidence that we will get there? Well, if that's the question you're asking, that's the very same question that the Apostle Thomas had for Jesus as soon as he said that. And so as Jesus goes on in John 14, it says, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Thomas was saying, Lord, I'm not sure I can make it there. You're saying you're going and preparing a place, but how how can I possibly get there? How do I know the way? And it says that Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Do you hear that? The the way to this home, the way to have confidence that this is your home is through Jesus Christ. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one comes home except through me. There is no other way to this heavenly home, beloved. There is no other way to this true home except through the Lord Jesus Christ. You must come to him this morning as both Savior and Lord, or you cannot enter this place that he is preparing. It's not enough to simply wish that you could go there or to want to go there. It's not enough to simply try and be a good person and cross your fingers. It's not enough even to think that Jesus was just a, a great teacher and he was a good person and so you want to listen to him. No, if Jesus is not your God, if he is not your all in all, then you have no access at all to this heavenly and eternal home. In particular, you must believe that Jesus and Jesus alone died to take the punishment for your sins and that he rose again in victory over death itself. That is how we have hope of eternal life. That is how we can look for the city that is to come. Because it is through this death and resurrection that Jesus gave us access to the Father. As Jesus says, it's through Jesus that we come to the Father. It's through Jesus that we come home. It's through his death and and resurrection that we can now enter our true home. The proportion to which we know Jesus and trust in Jesus is the proportion to which we have that sense of home here and now. 
When we come to know Jesus and trust in him, then we come to have confidence that we have an eternal home that's far better than any home that we've had in this life. And so do you know this morning where your true home is? I plead with each of you this morning to turn to Christ as that Savior, as that Lord, as the way and the truth and the life so that you can enter into this true home, this place that Jesus has prepared for you that no eye has yet seen and no ear has yet heard. How beautiful, how lovely it is. Now, if you are here this morning and you have turned to Jesus in saving faith, and don't just take for granted that you have. Ask yourself, have I really turned to Jesus in saving faith? If you have done that, then something strange happens when you trust in Jesus and when you come to know your true home. When you know your true home and when you find that your place of true, true rest is in Jesus himself and that Jesus has prepared this place for you, then suddenly you become an exile in your place of living today. You become a stranger to where you live right now. You become not at home wherever you may be living in this present day and age. The home that you thought was your home suddenly becomes not your home. Does that make sense how that works? Let's say I'm living here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which I am right now. Let's say that I've been here a long time and I've always thought that Pennsylvania was my home. But then let's say I get a letter in the mail one day from Saudi Arabia, and it's a very official-looking letter. It looks like it comes from some government agency. You know, it has official stamps on it and seals on it and all of these things. And I open this letter and I read it and it says, Mr. Ivy, it's been brought to our attention that you were a victim of kidnapping immediately after your birth. Ever since you were lost, your parents have been looking for you. We have finally located you and want to notify you that you are properly a citizen of Saudi Arabia and your parents reside here in Riyadh. Well, if I were to get a letter like that, suddenly it would dawn upon me that in some small sense at least, I actually wasn't at home in Pittsburgh for all those years. It would dawn on me suddenly that Saudi Arabia is actually my true home, that that is where I am a citizen, that is where my parents are, and they want me to go and join them. And so for all those years that I thought I was at home in Pittsburgh, I would have actually been in exile, a victim of kidnapping from my true home. My home would no longer be my home. My whole world would be turned upside down. And beloved, that is exactly what is supposed to happen to us when we come to Christ. Suddenly, we realize that the place we thought was home is not actually our home. Suddenly we realize that we aren't actually Pittsburghers here or wherever you happen to be from. We're actually Heavensians or Heavenites or whatever you call people that are from heaven. That that's us. That's our true home. That we've actually been kidnapped and stuck in this dark place called Pittsburgh. And we have a true home somewhere else in heaven. And that is where our citizenship is. Do you know where your true home is, beloved? Peter realized deeply where his true home was. And he wants you to see where your true home is too. 
When Peter writes this letter, he says he is writing to exiles. Again, if you look at 1 Peter 1, verse 1, it says, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, I don't hate the translation here of exile, but exile, at least in my mind, comes to the connotation that you've broken some law and you've been kicked out of your home country. But the Greek word here, peripedemos, that is behind the word for exile, simply means that you are a stranger. You're, you're in a strange place. It might be better translated pilgrim or traveler or sojourner. It doesn't mean that you've been arrested and somehow kicked out of your home. There's a different Greek word for that. And so what Peter is saying is that to those who are elect sojourners or elect travelers or elect pilgrims, those who are going through some strange place for a short time. Now, in the letter that Peter writes, it it is clearly true in a very literal and physical sense that the people he's writing to are in a strange place and to some extent even against their will because this verse also says that they are elect exiles of the dispersion. Okay, so what is the dispersion? Well, scholars don't agree on what exact dispersion Peter is referring to because in the first century there were many different dispersions. There were many different times when Christians were scattered out from a place, and so it's not clear exactly which one Peter is writing about, but it's probably some dispersion from Rome because Peter is writing from the city of Rome, and we'll look at that in just a moment. But he's writing to people that have been dispersed. Now, if we want to understand how this happened, the New Testament actually does give us one very clear example of how the Christians early on were dispersed from their true homes. In the book of Acts, we see the birth of the church in Jerusalem. And in, in Jerusalem, the church has a short period of flourishing and growth. But soon as the church is growing and growing, the religious leaders decide that they can't handle this rival religion growing in their city, and so they begin to crack down. It begins with Stephen, right? The very first martyr. And then as soon as Stephen is stoned in Acts 8 verse 1, it says, There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, And they were all scattered. The Greek word there, diaspero. They were all dispersed. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So this is what Peter is referring to when he writes that his fellow Christians, that the elect travelers of the dispersion, he's saying that his brothers and sisters in Christ have been persecuted. And so now they've fled to all these different cities, to different regions that is not their home. And so they certainly are exiles or or aliens in an earthly sense. But again, Peter doesn't only mean that they are exiles or aliens in an earthly sense. He means that they are exiles or aliens in an even grander sense, in a more permanent sense. He means that as long as they are anywhere on this earth, as long as they are anywhere on this earth that is not heaven, that they are actually exiles. Peter wants them to see that their present exile or their present sojournings are actually just a preparation for them to help them understand their true exile, which is the nature of the entire Christian life. There are a few places in 1 Peter where I could, where I could go to prove that this is what Peter's talking about, but for the sake of time, I just want to go to one place. I want to go to the very end of the book. 
And so if you want to flip over to 1 Peter chapter 5, I'm going to look at verse 13, which is the second to last verse of 1 Peter. The second to last verse of 1 Peter says, She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Now this verse tells us three things. I'm going to note just two of them just for background purposes, but I'm going to focus on one. First, it tells us that Peter is writing from a city that he calls Babylon, and I'll return to that in just a moment. Second, it tells us that there was a church in Babylon with Peter. That's why Peter says, she who is likewise chosen. He's talking about the church, the chosen people of God that he is with as he is writing this letter. And third, it means that Mark was with Peter in Babylon. You can see that uh, is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Now, this Mark is probably familiar to you all. The second gospel in our Bibles is the gospel of Mark, right? And so this is how we know that Mark was connected with Peter. And so many people, when they read that second gospel, the gospel of Mark, they understand this to actually be Peter's gospel, that Peter, as he was writing the gospel of Mark, was looking at the gospel of Matthew, which was the first gospel, and the gospel of Luke, which is kind of Paul's gospel. And Mark was helping Peter to put these gospels together into Peter's own accounts of the life of Jesus. And so Mark is here again with Peter in Babylon as he is writing this letter to those who have been dispersed, who are exiles in various lands. Now, what about that word Babylon? Why does Peter say that he is writing from the city of Babylon? Well, at the time of Peter's writing, Babylon was basically a heap of ruins. There's no record of Peter actually ever having gone to the city of Babylon. Babylon had been destroyed. Excuse me. Babylon had been destroyed once by the Persian Empire in the 500s BC. That's written about in the Bible itself. You can read about that. And then it was destroyed again by Alexander the Great in the 300s BC. So when Peter's writing, there is no more city of Babylon. And yet Peter says that he is writing from Babylon. And so Peter is trying to communicate something. He's trying to tell us something else when he is writing from Babylon. First, we should understand that when he is writing of Babylon, he is speaking to us of the city of Rome. Babylon was a common name for Rome in Peter's day because just as Babylon had destroyed Jerusalem and persecuted the Jewish people, so now Rome was destroying the church and was persecuting its people. So Rome was a modern-day Babylon to Peter. But that's not the only thing that Peter meant to say. By calling Rome Babylon, Peter is also cluing us in to two other things. First, he is looking at his current place and current time through the lens of the Bible. He is showing us that what is most true about where we live right now is not the place name itself, but the place that it bears in the plan of God. And in the plan of God, places can either be Babylon's or they can be Jerusalem's or Zion's. This is where Peter is again picking up on Isaiah. Isaiah spoke of Babylon as a representation of all that is against God. And Isaiah contrasted Babylon with Zion, which was the beautiful city that God was preparing for his people. 
And so for Peter, the ultimate question about where he was was not, am I in Rome or am I in Capernaum or am I in Bithynia? No, his main question was, am I in Babylon or am I in Zion? For Peter to write to these Christians who have probably been kicked out of their homes in Rome and for him to say that I am writing to you from Babylon would have sent them a powerful message. Peter is saying to them, do not long to return to your home in Rome. Rome is not your true home. Rome is Babylon. And wherever else you go on the earth is going to be like a Babylon. Beloved, do you know where your true home is? Whether you are living in Pittsburgh or Florida or California or Europe or Asia or anywhere else on this earth, you are not moving to paradise. You are not moving home. You are moving to Babylon regardless of where you go. Now, Matthew 24 is a mysterious passage, but I think I'm being faithful in how I'm using it here when Jesus is speaking to his apostles And he's telling them about when his kingdom will come. When will Zion finally be on earth? His disciples are asking him, when will we finally be home, Lord Jesus? And Jesus answers them that before they make it home to Zion, this is going to happen. This is Matthew 24, verse 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations For my namesake. Hated by all nations for my namesake. Do you hear that? Jesus says, all nations, panta ta ethne, all nations. There is no place on this earth where we can go, where we can say, ah, now I am home. Everywhere we might go, we are in Babylon, beloved. We are hated by the forces of the world and by the forces of the devil because we represent our Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus is telling us that Zion is not yet. We have not yet made it home. We are in Babylon. And if you want to be truly faithful to Christ, then you must be certain of this in this world, that the nations will hate us. Paul puts it as straightforwardly as possible in 2 Timothy 3.12. All those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All of those who desire to do that will be persecuted. It's part of the fact that we live in Babylon, beloved. No matter where on earth you go, you don't go home. You just go to a new part of Babylon. You will live in exile and therefore you will suffer. But calling this world and the nation right now Babylon... As much as it is a statement that we will be persecuted, it is also and mainly intended to be a statement of great hope. And why is it a message of hope? Because Peter could point to Babylon in his own day and he could say, look at how God has destroyed Babylon and look at how the people of God are still standing. The ruins of Babylon are a testimony to the fact that God will triumph and that our true home has not been taken away from us. And so even in Peter's own day, as powerful as Rome may have seen, it certainly didn't seem more powerful than Babylon when it was at its peak. And God took care of Babylon, and so he can also take care of Rome. 
And so, beloved, by saying that we are living in Babylon, we are saying that we are living in a place that is destined to destruction. And we have a hope that is beyond this present city that is falling apart. Beloved, where do you want your true home to be? Do you want your true home to be in Zion, a city that can never be shaken? Or do you want your true home to be in Babylon, the city that is destined for destruction? Now, I know, beloved, that in America, it's easy for us to think that we aren't living in Babylon because we have freedom of religion and we don't seem to be very persecuted and we should indeed be very thankful for those things. But make no mistake, if the kingdom that we are living in is not the kingdom of Christ himself, if it is not the church, then it is called Babylon and we dare not seek our hope there. America itself doesn't have any hope of making it into the age to come. America is part of Babylon. And so, beloved, do you know where your true home is? Is your true home the city of peace? Or is it the city of destruction? Now, I realize that perhaps all of what I have said sounds somewhat theoretical. So maybe let me take just a few moments to bring this home, to give you some concrete examples of how this makes a difference in our life today. I hope you've maybe, as I've been preaching, have gotten some glimpse of how understanding our true home to be this future destination that it's never fading away, I hope you've already gotten some glimpse of how this might affect your heart, of how it might change your life. But again, let me just give you a few concrete examples. I think one big thing it does for us, and this might be the biggest thing, is it teaches us what to expect here and now. It teaches us what to expect here and now. Now, expectations are incredibly important for us as humans because so often our expectations control our emotions. If we expect something really wonderful and something turns out to be bad, well, then we're really disappointed. We can be destroyed. And yet, if our expectations are calibrated rightly, and we have low expectations, and then something low happens, well, then we can even be happy, because exactly what we expected to happen is what happened. And I think this is a big part of what Peter is trying to speak to us when he says that we are exiles, that we are sojourners here and now. He's trying to set our expectations rightly. He's trying to say, don't expect your life right now to be bliss, to be wonderful, to be all happiness all the time. No, expect your life now to be suffering. Expect your life now to experience persecutions and hardships. And beloved, if you will take that mindset, if you will stop looking for heaven on earth right now and you will accept that we live in Babylon, then that can free up your emotions in all kinds of ways. When your children maybe aren't acting the way you want them to act, when your bank account doesn't seem to be where it's at, when you experience physical or health problems of various kinds, you're not surprised by these things anymore. You're not saying, woe is me, how could the Lord let this happen to me? No, you're saying, Lord, this is what you have planned for me from the beginning. You have sent me here in Babylon to be a light You have sent me here in Babylon that I might have hope for the age to come. And so regardless of what trial may come into my life here now, I'm not going to be discouraged. It is not outside your plan. Rather, this is exactly what you have spoken to me. And so I will bear it even as Christ himself 
bore his cross. And Peter will have much more to say of that in the pages to come. And so the first thing this does is it just helps to set our expectations across the board. Regardless of what kind of suffering we we may experience, we understand that this is the world that we live in right now. A second really big practical effect of this is that it braces us to look quite different from the world around us. It braces us to look quite different from the world around us. Especially here in America, in a democratic society, we can be think that one of the highest forms of citizenship or one of the most important things we can do is to try to fit in, is to try to keep the peace, is to try to keep consensus. And if we seem to be sticking out, if we seem to be at war with the culture around us, then we can start to feel like we're doing something wrong, like we must be making some mistake because we seem to stick out so much. And what is it that we're missing? And yet, understanding this dichotomy, understanding that we are not in Zion, that we are here below in Babylon, understanding that we are truly strangers, that we are exiles in this land, tells us that it should be totally natural and normal for us to look strange. And if we don't look strange, then that should be strange, because we are sojourners and exiles. And so if you experience relational tension or relational conflict with people around you because they don't understand why you're living your life in a certain way, why you have to do this, why you have to do that, instead of trying to search for some excuse or some reason why you're really not so strange or why this really is normal, it's okay, beloved, to simply say, yeah, I'm weird. I'm an exile. This isn't my home. And you can be content in that response. You can look different from the world, and even if people hate you, you can be at peace because you know that this is how God has arranged it. A third really practical effect of understanding where your true home is is it gives you expectant hope, even in the midst of suffering that you face today. I don't know what kind of suffering each one of you may have come in here with, but maybe some of you have come in here and you feel like you're suffering in some way where the water is just about to come up over your head. And if that's you, then remember this, beloved, that you're just a short distance away from your true home. That this isn't your true home. You don't have to have your best life right now. You don't have to be at perfect peace here. That you can let the billows, the waves of suffering roll over you and you can have hope because you can look to a future day when you will be in your true home. And you understand that as long as you're in Babylon, you just have to be uncomfortable for a short, short time. Again, beloved, this life is like a blink of an eye compared to eternity that we have waiting for us with God in Zion. We have hope for a true home. And then fourth and lastly, this principle of us being exiles, of us being strangers, it teaches us to hold on loosely to the possessions that we have now. As Job himself said, naked I came into this world and naked I will return. The Lord is given and the Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Beloved, we are just strangers passing through. We are just travelers. We are just pilgrims. Why would you store up wealth here and now? Why would you store up possessions here and now when you're just passing through this town for a short time on your way to a home that lasts forever? 
This is why Jesus exhorts us to store up treasures where moth cannot eat and rust cannot destroy. Beloved, we have the opportunity to give up our happiness, our comfort here and now, and gain happiness and comfort in a place where it will never end, where it will never fade away. And so let us hold loosely, beloved, to whatever good thing we have now, whether it's possessions, whether it's family or friends. We can know that this life's journey will be over very soon, and we will be home. And so, beloved, for all these reasons, I ask the question again, do you know where your true home is? If you know where your true home is, it will transform your life in a thousand ways. We've decided to title this series, Strangers and Aliens, Gospel Vision for the Difficult Journey Home. And I hope you've seen this morning how life is a journey home and how it is a difficult journey home. But because we are strangers and aliens, if we have this gospel vision, if we have this vision of what the Lord has promised to us, then we can have hope for every step of the journey. We can endure whatever trial the world and the devil may try to throw our way because we know the place that God has prepared for us. And we are fixing our eyes on that great day when we can be there and we can finally say, I am home. Beloved, I am so looking forward to that day. I may have not had a great earthly home, but I have a home that is coming. And I am so eager to get there. Would you join me in the journey home? Let's pray together now.